HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. This is Greenhorns Radio, and today I'm recording from the Grange in the landline. It's amazing. And I'm here with Sean Dembrowski from Trumansburg, New York. Hi, Sean. True. Hi. (laughs) True. So Trumansburg, New York is kind of becoming its own little Hardwick. Will you mind just giving a little uh, orientation on the area? Sure. Uh, well, so Trumansburg, New York, is like smack dab in the middle of the Finger Lakes area, uh, which is kind of smack dab in the middle of New York State, um, about 12 miles or so north of Ithaca, New York, where Cornell University is, and Ithaca College, and um, being a couple miles north of downtown Ithaca, basically you start getting really into big open farmland um, and there's a whole lot of different interesting small-scale and medium-scale farms all in this area, and still a fair bit of good culture and social space and all that kind of thing. So, yes, it's a nice, it's a real nice area to live and, and to work and to do the farming that I do. There's a lot of great folks that are also doing similar things. Um, and there's in Trumansburg, they have this amazing laundromat that has these, like, turquoise washing machines from the 1950s, and they also have Wi-Fi, and it's so beautiful. It's true, yeah. You can do your laundry there, and there's oddly culturally insensitive signage on the walls. It's a very strange, very strange scene in there. There's yeah, some like, things about Trumansburg Truman, that it's, like, new-ish, and there's a very old-school feeling to the space as well. But it's a, it's a, good, a good town. Um. So, hi, Sean. How are you? Hi. What's going on? Oh, uh, well, you know, just this and that. <laughs> um, how have you been? 
I've been good. I've been out in California. We were doing organizing around land access, and um, so now I'm back in the cold and adjusting. Yeah, it's been um, wonderful to have it be feeling like an actual winter recently. I know. Um, and there's so I've much been so. Snow. Let's see what I've been up to. Um, currently trying to harvest a bunch of sugar maple logs or bolts to put shiitake mushrooms into this spring and uh, hauling in tons and tons of truckloads of horse manure and wood chips and coffee grinds and all sorts of stuff to build up compost piles that are cooking down for spring fertility and just getting ready in all the ways that I can while the ground is frozen to be ready for a big growing season this year. Um, I have a woman coming out tomorrow who is an agent for the New York State uh, Ag and licensing for um, for me to be a registered nursery for the state of New York. And so I've been trying to get ready and cleaned and organized for that and be ready to become a small-scale nursery come this spring. <gasps> so lots of new projects to work on, even though it's been like soundly below freezing for the last many days. It's been, been a very productive time. Wow. I didn't know you were going to become a commercial nursery. That's amazing. Let's talk about the evolution of your farm business, just to give folks some orientation. Sure. Um, well, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's a very small-scale thing. So I, I have a project that I call Edible Acres, um, and there's more information online if people want to see. It's pretty outdated, but I have edibleacres.org uh, as a website that has some information and background. Um, basically, it's, it's six acres that I'm on here that I share with my family. Um, it's a very small-scale forest farming um, project. It's a home and a homestead first and a small-scale farm and permaculture research space is a close second. Um, and so my whole, the whole thing here is I've been on this property for, this will be the beginning of the fifth growing season when, uh, when things start to thaw out this year. Um, and so it's been four growing seasons so far of really kind of slowly shaping the marginal flat prone to flooding six acres of land that we're on into a really high density forest farm. Um, so there's, you know, a few thousand different tree crops that have been planted, you know, black locusts for fuel wood and for nitrogen fixation and chestnuts dotted throughout and hazelnuts and this and that. Um, and a lot of it is you very can make extreme. syrup out of black locust also. I'm sorry, what's that? You can make black locust syrup from, like, sap. Ooh, huh. Like, yeah. Well, I should do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although they're, they're pretty young right now. Um, it's funny you mentioned that somebody was just asking because we were going to harvest these sugar maple logs for mushroom production, and they were wondering about other trees that you can make uh, sap or syrup from. And I know po folks have been doing black walnut and pretty happy with the results. And we were thinking about birch syrup and what that would be like and how nice that would taste. And black locust, I never thought to try. Have, is it good? Um, I don't know. My friend... Um, we're talking about tree sap, and um, my friend Connor Stedman, he's a permaculture geek also. Mm -hmm. You might know him. He lives in Vermont. I don't know anyway, if I do know him. 
You don't know him? You should know each other. You would like each other. Well, okay. <laughs> um, should meet at a potluck sometime. Yeah, we should make a, we should create some kind of an event where people socialize yeah. or something like that. That sounds very good. <laughs> so, um, okay, so we're talking about your different tree crops. Tell me some more. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, a, a, a lot of the work that's going on here is planting out as many different types of trees and shrubs that I've heard about or have interest in but I haven't really seen in production um, and just trying to give them a fair share to to get established to understand what sort of yields they can provide and what sort of markets they might be able to open up um, and work into. So like one of the, some of the more exciting things that I've been experimenting with in the last few years are um, uh, Nanking cherries have been seeming to be a really promising uh, shrub and fruit crop. Um, they get no protection from mice, voles, and deer, and they get girdled like crazy every winter, but they still make huge fruit sets every spring, and um, that's been exciting. Goji berries seem like they have some really good viability, even though it's a you know pretty cold winter area here. Um, trying to see how hardy hazelnuts are deep in the shade and whether or not they'll still provide good yields in challenging kind of semi-flooded spaces and uh, whether or not they'll be black walnut tolerant. And, um, yeah, just lots of experiments and kind of the secondary thing is the marketable yield of fruit or nuts. Um, and so that's why they kind of moved towards the idea of setting up this space as a nursery rather than a production farm um, because there will be things that won't produce because I'm like, really experimenting with where they're planted or how they're treated. Um, but it feels like each spring I'm, I just have a huge excess of new plants since they're all pretty hardy, mobile, perennial things that I'm working with here. So, um, Well, and you're yeah, not alone in that business model. I mean, obviously the famous one is the Bullock Brothers up on Orcus. They have a, a permaculture nursery, but my friend Krista Farmer and my friend Logan and, like, all the dudes who are permy dudes who've gone to a lot of trouble to collect rare tree crops and tulies trees and, you know, then they all just start air, um, what's it called, air grafting, air layering and mm-hmm. propagating and potting up and selling. Yeah, yeah it's just a, a very natural extension. that You have um, kind of a, an interest bordering on obsession with new plants and, and understanding all these new Things and so each year, you know, I, I buy in and bring on some new seeds or some new rootstock or trade with folks. And but then each spring, I'm also you know left with this variety of raspberry that's just run amok and taken over a pathway. And so I'm ready to to either dig it up and compost them, or better yet, you know, barter with them, or even better yet, is earn some money so that I can buy more plants. <laughs> you know, it's it's not really a business model where. Um, it's like, you know, get rich quick or, or any, I don't think there's any farm models that really do that, but... Um, yeah, it's it, called marijuana. <laughs> right, well, we'll see how that goes for New York State, but for now I'm sticking with the, the sea kale and air potatoes and the nanking cherries, and we'll see what works with that. Do, um, um, do nanking cherries, are they good in pies? Are they sour, or are they more like soppy sweet? 
they're they're more sour. Um, they're awesome. they definitely have a good sugar content, but um, I would describe them as being about one third the size of an average sweet cherry and about six times the flavor. Um, wow. So they're they're a lot smaller. They've got a big seed to pulp ratio, but the flavor is really rich and complex. So. And you can you can stand at one of these shrubs rather than being up on a ladder and you know kind of seeking out all these random cherries and popping them off. You can basically just strip forty or fifty off in one stroke um, on these flexible low branches and just have you know handfuls of these little tart, sour, bold, interesting red jewels. Um, wow. And they, they actually, they flower about a week before the forsythia up here. And as crazy as the weather was this spring with all the way too hot, way too early, and then a frost in mid-April, they just kind of carried right on through all that roller coaster of weather and, and still put on a huge fruit set, whereas a lot of the farmers in this area had some pretty devastating crop loss on their cherries and apples. Um, and so it's kind of a reminder that each year I want to bring on more fruit crops that are that are not grafted, that are really hardy to a wide range of conditions and, you know, are, are unique. Because I can go and get sweet cherries when there's a good year, but I don't know where else to, to get making cherries or fresh raw goji berries around here. Well, um, and, I mean, up in Michigan, so my favorite cherry, commercial cherry, is the Montmercy cherry. They make sour um, cherry syrup. It's from Eden Foods in Michigan. It's like crack cocaine, this stuff. So I want to come to your farm and make cherry syrup. But last year, the Montmercy cherry growers uh, in Michigan had 90, 90% crop loss right. because of the crazy early thaw and then hard, uh, hard cold after. So right. there's a question about where are we doing the research about resilience, resiliency and, and planning for what seems like inevitable climate change, uh, whether right. or not it's politically correct or accepted or USDA approved, it seems like the climate is going to be changing. Right. What's your and perspective whether, on that? Yeah. Well, right. I mean, whether or not it, the, the right, it's it's happening. I mean, I, I, I just heard a statistic recently that if if you are 27 years old or younger you've never experienced a colder-than-average month in your entire life. Now, I can't remember exactly where I heard that, but it sounds about right. It feels like each year, each month is warmer than, than it's been <laughs> before. Um, and, but then along with that is, yeah, it gets, it gets warmer every summer, but it's also, it just feels like so much more tumultuous year-round, like it's much wetter and then much drier, and then, you know, it's it's kind of all over the place. And so um, my whole feeling is uh, there's nothing I'm going to be able to do about changing climate stuff or changing political will around um, on, like, a global scale. So the only thing I think that I feel like I can do within the power of what I have is to just plant as much different species diversity as possible and at least empirically get my head around what seems to be thriving when things are chaotic, um, you know, what things can handle 
extreme heat and extreme cold, um, droughty conditions. I mean, I don't for the for the four growing seasons that I've had here, I haven't used uh, well water once for irrigation. I'm, I'm completely dependent on rainwater. Um, so I you know I store as much as I can, but any crop that's going to thrive at edible acres has to be a crop that can deal with drought conditions and can deal with seasonal flooding because that's basically, you know, I'm on this flat, shallow-to-bedrock silt, and right now I've got, you know, like water underneath the ice moving around and, and, you know, seeking lower routes to get away from here. And in the summer it'll be cracked and dry, so it's really challenging. Um, And so there there are lots of random crops that I'll try that just kind of disappear by the end of the season because they just can't handle that sort of stress. So it's, I'm propagating the things that stick around and proliferate. And so it's kind of like self-selecting for chaos happiness. <laughs> well, <laughs> one of the things we oh. all, you know, I feel like a lot of times we think, oh, well, there's all these different heirloom varieties. And, you know, I'm just going to go into the catalog or the museum or the database and, you know, choose one of the nice of these heirloom varieties that were developed in this, you know, golden age of agriculture. You know, when in fact that golden age of agriculture is only a relic. Are you, if you're we, saying, what's my feeling on that? Or n- well, no, I'm saying, okay. Well, anyway, <laughs> I was on a little like r- not rampage, but I was about to talk about adaptive selection, um, yep. and because um, I feel like sometimes we, even as alternative, progressive you know, engaged, open-pollinated, oriented gardeners think about the arsenal of varieties that we have as a kind of static, as like an arsenal, as a hard drive, or as a, you know, relic of a past, of like a golden era. And, in fact, we have all the tools that our ancestors had to adapt plants ourselves and to selectively breed our own heirloom varieties and adapt varieties that we like or that work well in our climate or that can put up with our extremes or make a good cider or whatever it is that our human instincts drive us to select for in combination with what the nature throws at it in the place where we are. And now all this sounds kind of obvious when I say it, but I, I do feel like the consciousness um, needs to be raised on this topic. And um, that's point number one. Point number two is I have a friend out in uh, California, and he's going around to, like, old mining camps and abandoned homesteads and uh, basically getting... A lot of, most of those would be, like, seedling plums and seedling pears and uh, that, have, that have basically are now, like, 400-year-old trees because they're from homesteading times or 300... Yeah. Or 400 years is really long. Maybe they're younger than that because it's California, so it's probably right. only 200-year-old <laughs> trees. Um, anyway, the point is there could be trees that would be almost as old as this country. Um, but anyway, so he's taking those trees or the seedlings that grew that from the mother tree that grew up around and starting with those as a, as a strategy for getting, you know, getting really up into the genetics. Do you have any of those theories or thoughts or practices? Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would say I, I certainly am doing uh, a huge amount of, of seed 
saving. Um, and I, I just joined, there's a Seed Savers Collective that's starting to happen in the Ithaca area. We have an event coming up in late February where people can come and trade seeds or get seeds if they need them. Um, and so I'm getting involved with these other folks that are really interested in seed saving. And I, I think where I particularly come from with it is I'm not so interested in um, like really specific, specialized look or taste of things. I want crops that are that are very, very hardy and just kind of take care of themselves. And when my criteria is simple and and that's really what I'm going for, then doing that sort of selection just happens naturally. I'm, I'm presented each year with the the kale plants that are the tallest and have the biggest, healthiest seed heads as the ones that I will go ahead and save seed from or the, the lettuce that just somehow randomly coasts all the way through winter and bolts in the spring and makes seeds, that's who I'm selecting for. And so in the long run, I might actually be selecting more for these kind of like feral, mongrel, aggressive versions of fine and dainty heirlooms, but I'll end up with uh, crops that, that once they're set in motion, they'll have perennial, persistent sort of energy to them, and they'll take care of themselves and be available on an as-needed basis without cultivation. And that, that to me, is the most important thing. And I, I definitely appreciate and love that there are, like, 5,000 different varieties of tomatoes that you can pick from, but I, I like the idea of you know, just kind of whipping cherry tomatoes into the forest and whichever ones come up, come up, and those are the ones that I'm eating and throwing back into the forest again and the little random open glades and kind of having these wild vines growing with food shooting off of them. Um, so the annual crops, you know, you've got a, such a fast turnaround by playing with them every year um, and selecting for the criteria you want, like the biggest leaf or the sweetest this or the the greenest that, um, but for me, it's just like whoever presents the most seed generally gets my attention, um, and they'll they'll be grown out the first year in in the family garden where it's protected, and they have access to the saved rainwater, and I can irrigate them and mulch them and weed them, and then once I have a pound of seed of this or that, it's just um, it moves out into the the broad five acre, six acre. Um, forest context, and it's kind of just scattered seed and kind of cross my fingers that something comes up. Um, so you just basically, I, you have a garden of badasses. Yeah, yeah, or a garden, a, well, a garden of dainties where badasses show up and I, I, I gladly take their seed and put them out into the badass world and let them do their thing. <laughs> and sometimes they'll just, dis, you know, once they're out into a more wild, feral context, they disappear because they can't handle that sort of challenge. But, you know, I've, over the last four years, I've been selecting for this type of kale that has a really good flavor, is really sweet, huge leaf, and um, makes tons and tons of seeds and will take care of itself. And for some reason, rabbits don't eat it unless they're absolutely starving, um, and so it's now becoming a weed on this property and on another farm where I shared that seed. It's just starting to turn into this persistent brassica that um, 
really is just like locking in as one of the weeds, you know, along with quackgrass and along with motherwort is this particular kale. Um, and so I'd love to see that partnered with, you know, a type of lettuce that will be able to handle that kind of competition and that sort of stress and some sort of spinach that just kind of sneaks in and, and holds its own amongst a big pile of grass and, um, I, I feel like I lack kind of have food everywhere by throwing seeds at everywhere and not really working too hard beyond that. Um, so I don't know if I can do that for the next ten or twenty years. I'll end up with yeah a forest just loaded to the hilt with food that um, I periodically weed by eating it. <laughs> um, I wanted to make sure. Well, first of all, I just wanted to tag for myself and for others that. It'd be really interesting to do more research on land races and how indigenous cultures around the world manage the very distinct genetic um, varietals that they have. And I just learned about this one plant in Southeast Asia that's used for thatch and used for holding things. And they basically have this plant that grows like a weed, but they have five or six or 12 different kinds of it. Um, it's hmm. called Weepio, and uh, and they're they may, they it's wild, but it's maintained. And there's these different uh, varieties that have different uses and are used in different times of the year. So so anyway, this is just a tag for all of us to think about, like what are indigenous seed breeding and um, methodologies, and where do we go learn about that? So I'm gonna bring that question forward, but you can challenge your seed community also. Um, I wanted to give you a chance to promote that seed event briefly. Is that Jeff who's organizing it? Um, no, the, the main person, there's a, a group of folks that are involved in organizing. I'd say the main person is Chris Gardner, who's involved at the Cornell Cooperative Extension. Um, and, yeah, I, you know, off the top of my head, I'm not sure the exact website where folks can go, but if you went online and searched for uh, Cornell Cooperative Extension, and specifically it's called CD Sunday, it's coming up on February the 24th, which is a Sunday, from, I think, 11 till 3. Um, it's, it's in Ithaca, New York, and anybody's welcome to go, whether or not you have seeds or not, it doesn't matter. You're invited to go, and, and the idea is that no money is to exchange hands. People are just trading ideas or seeds or, or getting themselves started. Um, I'm going to be doing a presentation on really, really simple, low-tech, low-cost seed-saving techniques. Um, a good friend of mine, Petra, is going to be putting on a presentation on um, selection and breeding for biennial plants. And, um so there, there should be some really good information and definitely tons and tons of free seeds and a good opportunity to come. You know, if you've got some crazy beet that you got from your great-great-grandfather that uh, you think the world should grow, then that's a great opportunity to bring it out and share. Awesome. Seed Swap. Um, yeah. yeah we, posted the, we posted the URL for that on our resource page because they made an amazing Seed Savers resource page for Cornell Cooperative Extension. Uh, and yeah. I got it from the librarian at the Mann Library, uh, Jeff. Oh, yeah, like Jeff. Yeah, there's some some really good stuff happening in this area around that, and um, I think it's just such a critical 
critical thing to do. And the European Union, I guess, I don't know the full detail of it, but this uh, Chris Gardner was sharing her experience in Ireland where she went and learned about seed saving. And I guess in the European Union, there's some pretty heavy-duty legislation around control over the ability to not even sell seed, but to share or disseminate seed. You have to have licensing. Uh, You can be fined pretty heavily if you are just sharing seeds. You know, you have a a really excellent variety of celery and you hand those seeds off to somebody and the the wrong authority sees you doing it and you can be fined for it, Um, which is a really frightening idea. uh, But it seems as though the theme in corporate agriculture is to control genetics. Um, And so having things in motion and having the the social resilience around a good distributed seed dissemination and saving and, and sharing and knowledge uh, network for all the different areas, I think is just so critical, um, even regardless of the corporate um, angles that are on top of all that. But just for our own sake, pe- people, people can grow crops that work really well for their region by growing them. You know, if you buy in new seed that's raised in Oregon every year, you never really are moving closer to having plants that will thrive in your area. Um, you're kind of always dependent on this genetics from far away that may or may not thrive in the conditions that you that you have on the ground where you live. So, awesome. Everyone should go to CD Sunday this Sunday, um, Sunday the 24th. Then mm-hmm. another thing I wanted to make sure to bring up, because when I met you, it was at the Farm Hack event we did in Ithaca at the Groundswell Incubator, and yeah. you were doing an ad hoc presentation, an amazing ad hoc presentation, which we PS filmed. If you ever wanted to get footage, we send me a hard drive. Um, the About your amazing, super cheap, ghetto uh, gray water process. Number one question, did you post your process and um, methodologies and resources for how to do it on FarmHack at the website? No, not yet. Do you <laughs> feel really that. guilty admitting that in front of thousands of people? Yeah, thanks. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I was kind of, I was hoping that if it got filmed, then it's all there and like oh, yeah. beautiful We're gonna do all digital high-res. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think I have I have video. My my favorite way to document things is with video, and um, I did put up a video on YouTube that went over one of my systems that I came up with a few years ago, and I've, I've since updated it a bit, but it has all the basic information on how to set up, and it it's more it's less about gray water for the systems I do here. It's more uh, rainwater collection. Um, that I'm focusing on on doing, and um, I'm trying to remember the name of that video, but it's I think I posted under the Good Life Farm a few years ago, which is a farm up in Interlaken that I'm associated with. I co-own the, the forest there, and they do some really amazing permaculture, broad-scale farming. Um, and I think if you went on YouTube and searched for rainwater collection in Good Life Farm, you'd find some video documentation of it. Um, but, yeah, my my hope would be uh, I, I want to share 
the rainwater thing has been it's been critical and like a core component of all of my farming here and so I've, I've put a lot of energy into collecting it and storing it and disseminating it around the farm um, without using any grid tied stuff or um, fossil fuels so I have some solar panels that charge old truck batteries that run bilge pumps that move water around but other than that it's all gravity fed or passively moved around and um, my hope is that folks that are really interested in doing that will take occasion sometime this spring or summer and be in touch and see the systems in action and ask lots of questions. And um, I, I definitely don't feel any proprietary ownership over the stuff that I'm figuring out here because it's all built on ideas from all sorts of random places. So, so what um, you're saying is we need to find somebody who's willing to come out there and video document your systems and then open source it. That would be awesome. Yeah. Done. <laughs> um, I want to nominate yeah, I myself. Love... I want to come and see. Well, please do. You're more than welcome. Yeah, there's probably like 15 different systems that are all catching water in slightly different ways and all at slightly different levels of efficiency and repeatability, some of which I would prefer not to show people because they're so poorly done and some that I'm really excited to show the world. And um, But it's good to see, like, the whole iterate, like, the original stuff and where all the leaks shoot out of and all the rain that's missed to the current ones that are pretty efficient to um, the ideas of where it can go in the future so that, you know, every last drop that hits a, a roof surface is stored cleanly in a container and ready for distribution. Um, this this was a really challenging growing season. It was very hot and very, very dry, um, and I just barely had um, enough water to get through with just about 0% crop loss, which was an exciting, I mean, stressful, but an exciting challenge to have uh, no access to well water and still have my basic farm system function during a, a very rough, hot drought. Um, so rainwater is definitely a viable way to operate a small-scale farm or a huge uh, home-scale garden, I think. And that's I don't have 100% of the roof area online just yet. There's some nooks and crannies inside, like the north of the garage doesn't catch rainwater, the south does. That's more surface area that I'll get online this spring. But, um, yeah, every drop of rain should be held onto as long as possible, like allowed to move through and onto destinations beyond, but to really take its sweet time getting there. I like that idea. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, Resource Tag, um, there's a wonderful group. Well, there's two wonderful groups. There's um, Rainwater Harvesters in Tucson, Arizona, led by Brad Lancaster. And then there's the Greywater Gorillas out of Oakland, California, um, led by a woman whose name is out of my mind right now. I'm sorry. But if you're interested in greywater or rainwater harvesting, those are two awesome places to look. You got any faves? I'm sorry, do you have any what? Do you have any favorite um, sources oh. of inspiration on, on rainwater capture? Um, hmm. I don't know. I, I'm a big fan. I really like the like funky, sometimes useful, sometimes useless, but generally entertaining crowdsourcing 
method of looking at YouTube videos and just kind of seeing all these really, really different ways that people are going about it. Um, I think that's where most of my inspiration has come from, is like seeing 60 or 70 different random systems and trying to think about how to distill out complexity from, you know, some of them are, are very, very low-tech and very sloppy, and so they don't really work super great. And, and a lot of them are, like, incredibly elegant, but... I think, so over-engineered that they end up being very costly. Um, it's just kind of like this continual thing of, like, what's the, what seems to be the, like, the least amount of stuff that's needed to make it work. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah. I think just spending time and, and like, giving myself the latitude to spend an evening um, looking at different videos and then looking at different links and documentation kind of, letting that slowly percolate into what is going to be the solution that works for me um, has been really helpful with a lot of systems and definitely with the, the rainwater collection. And I think it's just you, you make one, you know, whatever it's going to be, if, uh, a, a 30-gallon um, trash can that you scrub out with a Brillo pad and some Doc Browners that still holds water, put it under a downspout and see what see what it does. And then can you siphon water from that? Great. Can you throw an old uh, bed sheet over it to filter the water, and, you know, like, you just slowly build up. Um, I think if you start by built by buying, like, pre-built expensive kits, um, that's fine, but you, it's also, it's, a, it's fun to just see water get stored. Even, like, a five-gallon bucket underneath your downspout is, is a start, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think just doing it and looking at what other people that are randomly doing it are doing is a great way to go. Sean says, just do it, folks. <laughs> Sean, Put maybe we'll... So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come out there and video you sometime. I don't know if I can make great. it on Sunday, but, um, but I would like to document this. I think one of the major things that I've noticed from, from FarmHack is... Uh, Getting people to document in the early stages of their innovation period is easier than once they've figured it out because the the motivation of the novice is somehow has a different character than the motivation of the I've already figured this out person. Hmm. And that we need to build a culture of documentation yeah. all along the way. Yeah. Um, but that's fine. That's an insight that can be applied to a system. So. We just apply it. Um, yeah. Documentation is really important, and I, I, it comes in spurts when I uh, find myself taking the time to pause and like doing a quick short video um, or at least taking some photographs. I find at the very least if I take a bunch of random photographs as I'm doing something, I can look back at it a year later or two years later and be like, oh, yeah, that's what it looked like at the very beginning. And um you could always build out notes from there, but that takes almost no effort. Um, and that's at least a, a place to start with any system is just having some quick photographs to document where you're at at the beginning, middle, and, and end. So we come to the end of our time, and I'm very thankful for the, perm the Permi representation and for your amazing energy uh, at the FarmHack. You're like Superman. And you came in, 
did your talk right at the right moment and we before lunch and anyway, it was very great. Well, thanks. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to to share that. It was a, a felt like a good a good venue to to kind of geek out on the the random systems as as they're getting figured out. And this was a lot of fun to be on the phone with you and chat about stuff that is, I think, really important and a lot of fun to talk about. Totally. We'll do it some yeah. more. So just okay. so you know, there's Farm Hacks coming up in March, March 16th and 17th in Detroit. And then there's two in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and then in North Durham, Vermont. So there's a Teamster Farm Hack in the fall in September. There's a soil soil decontamination um, and urban farming farm hack in Detroit and Ann Arbor in mm. March, and then in between is the Minneapolis. And then we didn't get the funding for the California one, um, so we had to postpone it. Unfortunately, all these organic companies are fighting off the GMOs, so they're spending all their grant money, and uh, we had mm. to reapply, but... Once we get a GMO victory, then there'll be more grant money. So this has been Greenhorns Radio, Radio for Young Farmers by Young Farmers. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. It was fun to chat with you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.